Hello everyone and welcome to the brand new podcast series called Eurostory, stories of politics and human rights in Europe. My name is Bea Beriholm and hosting this podcast with me will be my colleague Paolo Amorosa. Hello. This podcast will bring you closer to high quality research about Europe and also give you an idea of what researchers from different backgrounds have to say about the history and current situation of Europe. Thank you, Bea. Today we have uh, the pleasure of uh, talking with Caio uh, Stuori, the director of the Eurostory Center of Excellence. Warmly welcome, Caius. Thank you very much. Welcome. Caius will be talking with us about uh, what Eurostory is and uh, all the interesting work we do here. And uh, without further ado, then let's uh, dig into it. We hope you enjoy listening to us and to the first episode of this new podcast. All right, Caius, uh, good to have you here. Uh, I was wondering, could you first tell us a bit more about uh, your story in your own words, like how it was born and why? So even before Brexit, there was something strange about how Europe was discussed. So the it seemed to me that the both the political and the legal discussions did not make sense. There was the arguments were were not rational in a sense. They didn't speak to me in that sense. And I started wondering that what is that about Europe that makes people make these assertions to make these claims that in the case of the kind of weird cucumber stories and so forth, mm -hmm. that there was something clearly behind those, something that was prompting people to make up these things. But I just couldn't understand why. And We had this idea and we discussed this uh, with some of my colleagues. So Eurostory, even though, though we are now an independent unit, uh, came about through the collaboration of uh, people who had the background at the, the Faculty of Law at the Eric Kastren Institute. And we started thinking of these themes that what could be Uh, a way of approaching these. And we came very quickly to the idea that it has to be multidisciplinary. You have to look at different mm -hmm. approaches because it is a common issue, but you can do, you look at it through different approaches. And what we came up with is that we're looking through, uh, we have now three approaches. We have uh, historical, philosophical, and anthropological. And it is, I would say, a culmination of quite a lot of my own interests mm -hmm. in the field. Okay. So I've been studying history, I've been studying anthropology, I've been studying law, and I wanted to somehow have a project which would look at a problem and then to uh, utilize these different approaches to, to bring about uh, something novel. Hmm. That sounds good. So you said uh, your story is multidisciplinary. So uh, what do you feel like are the advantages of such a combination of different research areas? So what we are looking at is that we want to deprioritize. So take the focus off the official narratives. So what the European Union or European leaders are themselves and look at how these are viewed. So look at, at so it's Eurostoria, so it's a, in plural, so it's about narratives. So this is something that really confuses a lot of people who have mm -hmm. been used to this kind of uh, focus on 
the official narrative. Right. And what we want to do is to see how different people talk about this, how not only the the Eurocrats in Brussels or the the local politicians in Finland or Britain or Germany talk about, but also how those other people are viewing this. So not only Europeans themselves, uh, but also people who are looking at Europe from, from abroad. So what is the the viewpoint what is the narrative of the migrant who is you know risking his or her life to come here what is the uh, the viewpoint what is the rationale that prompts the you know the the english miners mm. who are so much against europe for reasons that it seems that for them are you know very good reasons and so this means that this is a very different project than what you would normally get. So European studies or uh, European law has always been about the official narrative and mm. the criticization of the official narrative. But we want to take a focus and look at something else, look at how that official narrative resonates and how those kind of changes resonate uh, in the outside world. Mm, yeah. That's interesting. So it's like you're studying and looking at Europe, but also from other viewpoints than us Europeans. Uh, So, Caius, uh, you said that uh, your story is a mix of these historical and contemporary narratives and viewpoints. So... um, Why do you think it is important to mix those two? Do you have any concrete examples of that? So we have a lot of discussions. We have a lot of discussions with our within certain fields. But what those discussions do not really show is that they are talking very much among themselves. And what really f- I find fascinating is that they are talking about the same things. They are talking about the similar kind of narratives, mm-hmm. but they are talking about them separately. And what we want to do is to combine those, have a combination, and talking uh, talk about the similarities and dissimilarities between these stories that the historical narratives and the contemporary ethnography show. Right. So that it is very much about what is the kind of grand line, what is the long historical development. And I think that's something that, is missing in these contemporary discussions is that we have been talking about this in some cases uh, since the, the the end of the First World War. Mm-hmm. And the similar kind of arguments and discussions have been presented for a very, very long time. So to, just to take an example, if you have, and I'm just as a 46-year-old man, just taking an example out of nowhere, of this kind of historical understanding how people and how their personalities and how their convictions of right and wrong are being formed. If you look at how, say, a 50-year-old man living in Finland came to believe what he believes, uh, that is a very long process of that individual 
having experiences, learning about things in school, having fears, having this kind of an idea of what he wants from life. Mm-hmm. And when those things suddenly become, they change, this kind of event horizon changes, then you have that individual who starts to think of why is that world not the way that I was expecting it to be? And that is basically somebody is moving the goalposts. And that is something that is very, for an individual point of view, if you have like a factory worker who has grown up in uh places like Valkeakoski, a factory town. Mm. You are, at one moment, you are like the king of that city. You are getting paid well. You are you have social status. And then when the factory closes down, you have literally nothing. You have a, a house that ties you there. You cannot get a job that would pay you Uh, a very good salary. You can just get jobs that, you know, pay a normal service industry salary. So that is a very, very difficult situation and incomprehensible for the individual. And that is something that we need to understand is that that factory worker, he doesn't understand why there should be, you know, anything good with this kind of economic integration, if that economic integration means that everything that he has grown to uh, believe in life is taken away. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of a developmental process of the individual. And when there are rapid changes, that developmental process uh, is lagging behind. And of course, if you look at, you know, uh, today's 40 and 50 year olds, what they grew up with, was a very racist and very homophobic environment. So that is something that they grew up with and that becomes part of them. And so you can be at the same time anti-racist on a conscious level, but still have a racist subconsciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, uh, if you look at the American discussion, still is very much uh, recognized. So one of the points of this podcast is indeed to go and show how uh, the research we do at Eurostory is uh, relevant uh, on uh, the, the, the topical and societal questions that are being discussed in the news. So le- let's move a bit into that and uh, try to make uh, that connection. And well, let's see how this ages, but uh, one would sound a bit tone deaf if one would uh, talk about topical questions without uh, talking about uh, the coronavirus crisis and COVID-19 at all these days. Mm, Exactly. Uh, So this crisis has brought to the fore a debate that though has been dominant in many of the crises that have shaken Europe throughout uh, the 20th century. The one on rule of law, states of emergency, the limits of constitutionalism, that it's... uh, a debate that is, yes, a scholarly debate, but something that uh, is very much talked about also in everyday discourse. I'm thinking of all the polemics that uh, uh, have been uh, uh, directed at governments for all the limitations to, to constitutional liberties 
uh, to, to sort of address the, the health crisis. So how, in your view, can this uh, older crisis help us address the current debate? Thank you. Uh, when one talks about, as one does quite often in uh, in the news programs, and mentions that something is unprecedented, and if you look at the historical perspective, that is not really the case. It is Europe has faced vast more serious crises. Uh, this crisis, and the crisis is something of a uh, central theme in, in our project, is that the crises are these unifying but also separating moments. So an American researcher uh, quite nicely put in uh, that crises are moments where you don't really get new ideas but rather the old ideas gain new currency. Hmm, and what we have here in the, the current the COVID-19 uh, or corona uh, crisis is a retreat back into the nation states. And crisis is where Europe has been created or the European integration has been created. Crises are the, when, uh, the moments where we practice this kind of working together. And now it's really, a, we are at a very crucial point in seeing what will be the kind of re European response. And will this be a crisis that strengthens the European solidarity and the European cooperation or something that erodes it? But I would say that if we talk about uh, this kind of ideas of rule of law, states of emergency, and so forth, if we look at how the European institutions were created uh, in the late let, latter part of the 1940s, the European human rights institutions were created by people who had seen terrible, terrible things, had done terrible mm -hmm. things. These were people who had seen the most egregious violations of human rights, and they decided to sit down and decided that we have to do something about this. So if we are nowadays, of course, we are looking at uh, a very serious crisis. Many people have been killed, many people, uh, economic disaster, of course, but still it is on a minuscule scale compared to what we uh, what Europe encountered in the uh, in the 1940s so just to take an example of the people who were in the front lines making the european integration we had people who had been in exile we had people who had survived concentration camps so their the level of trauma that they've gone through there wouldn't be enough uh, therapists in the world mm. to deal with those in current, current day examples. So that these people who were talking about uh, things like rule of law, you had people like Franz Neumann, who had been a labor lawyer in 1930s Germany, who had escaped at the last minute before being uh arrested by the Gestapo, most of his friends were killed. And he escaped first to Britain and to, to America. Mm -hmm. And what he comes up there in America is a story of 
the rule of law as a fundamental societal value. And his example of that rule of law, his experience of that rule of law is precisely that of being deprived of the rule of law, being first shot, uh, being arrested, being persecuted. But also that when he goes to America, that he is for a very long time marginalized. He is one of those migrants who can't get a job. And so slowly he will then prevail, but still it is a trauma for him. And for those traumas, that is very important to understand that European integration is born out of these disasters and traumas and horrible experiences. And it is not just some lofty ideals. It is those, the horrible things that are uh, producing the reaction of those lofty ideals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really makes one think. Yeah, so an area in which the the processes, you, the events you were speaking out is uh, playing out at uh, several levels these days is the, the plans to address the, the, the European economic uh, recovery. And uh, these plans have given even further prominence to older narratives of uh, European uh, integration uh, indeed, both in the in the public uh, debate with the with the men of the street, let's say at the institutional level too. So simplifying very much. On one end, we have the Europe of uh, uh, mutual solidarity. On the other, we have the Europe of fiscal responsibility and austerity. We have learned that uh, there are some European states that think of themselves as frugal as opposed to to states that are supposedly less responsible. Then we have uh, a nationalist opposition to the European project that is usually associated with the right, but uh, it also comes from the left that portrays European integration as an erasure of national autonomy and as a threat. And of course, this is something that uh, plays with, uh, plays on legitimate uh, hopes and fears of European people. But then the question is, how did we get here to positions that end up being stereotyped in the public debate and not really respond to the, the personal issues and, and, and the personal fears and aspirations of, of people? How do we move towards more constructive narratives? Ooh, that's a big question. <laughs> that is a big Good question. Good <laughs> And I, um, I'm sorry, but the, the answer won't be very short. So there has never been a single narrative. There's always been a multivocality. Uh, there have always been these throwbacks of nationalism. So I would say that what we are e- experiencing right now is a kind of a hangover of the 1990s. But it's also when you talk about this crisis that it sort of shadows the kind of uh, unseen progress that has been made. If you look at how much progress has been made in both social and cultural issue, how much the European integration has progressed, it is 
inevitable that there is some kind of backlash or a uh, reaction. I would say that the historical point of view is important here also for the understanding of this kind of resurgences of nationalism, because we are informed by a historical consciousness. Uh, so that means what we believe is true. And there is really uh, no way of doing this kind of saying that what you believe is wrong. There is mm -hmm. no this kind of uh, emancipatory narratives of exposure saying that what you believe is actually this and this, and therefore it is wrong, and then people just magically, you know, stop believing that. Mm -hmm. They believe that because they believe that it is true. And so, historically, it's, while we're talking about historical events, it is easier to discuss why we believe something. So, for example, we cannot really talk about migrants without discussing what uh, we believe that we ourselves are and why these others are different than us. And what I think is very important is that we have this multivocality, we have this numerous in order to build up an, a, I would say, a European empathy. So beyond these stereotypes of addressing these issues that we are being, uh, we came up with a lot of nationalism, a lot of racism, a lot of homophobia. Mm -hmm. This is something that we, especially the older generation, picked up while we grew up. And that's something, it's not nobody's fault. They are not, you know, bigoted. Uh, they are, it is just the way that they grew up with. And that is something that needs to be addressed, that needs to be uh, discussed. We can also talk a bit about why these narratives are important. And narratives, of course, are just... A narrative is a story. Story. The narrative is a story that tells how things are and what they mean. So it's a fact mm -hmm. and meaning combined is a narrative. And the stories do matter. So the stories convey hopes and fears. Uh, stories convey stereotypes, they build connections, they build communities. So there is a kind of idea here. Uh, I think there was a, uh, it's very shallow to refer to a pot, uh, TED talk, but there was a, a <laughs> wonderful uh, Nigerian-American writer called uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story. I think it's... Uh, 2005 or something, making these rounds on Facebook all the time. And what she tells, when you have just a single story, a single definition of somebody or some group or individual, that sort of like that single story builds the stereotypes. It builds uh, very easily this kind of definitions of hate and exclusion. Mm. And what we need is this kind of many stories and viewpoints in order to, to breed uh, both pluralism and this kind of un understanding that it brings us. So the ideas of economic solidarity, they have to be understood through the viewpoint of the individual as well. So that if you have, like, for example, now there's an ongoing debate over uh, Brexit and the fisheries rights. And 
if you look at the the fishermen who had been very pro-Brexit and how in their sense these fishing communities, which are very small communities, but also very international communities, there is a kind of logic and irrationality at the same time existing. Mm. So that there is a kind of learned nationalism of this kind of uh, what the, the single fisherman thinks of the foreigners, the outsiders. That is something that is very common. That That's the way fishermen think, that if somebody comes to tell them what they should or should not do, they are immediately... Uh, in opposition to that. That is something that fishermen in Finland, probably fishermen in Italy, share. The get out of my face, I'm in my boat and I'm happy there <laughs> attitude. But that also is when you think when you have these interviews of these fishermen, is that there is a kind of a mixture that they do realize that in the case of uh if there's a hard Brexit, that they are fishing but they can't sell the fish to Europe because most of the fish goes to Europe. Mm-hmm. Or the processing of fish and most of the fishermen in those boats are also migrants. So that they are really in trouble if there's a hard Brexit and migrant workers can't come and there's no... But still the idea of this kind of self-sustained uh Dunkirk, Britain, is so well ingrained. And so that when you have this, uh, there was the New York Times had this wonderful uh, story about they were interviewing people in this fish. So that they do realize this kind of incongruence mm. or uh, uh, illogicality of that. Right. But the the realization of that illogicality didn't do anything to dispel those notions. Hmm, that's a very good answer for uh, for how we can overcome this kind of stereotype um, opposed discussion. No doubt that that's the direction then to achieve it. It's a more difficult matter. Moving to another very topical question that wasn't planned to be so topical, but there is a lot going on in the United States uh, at this time. Uh, In this case, we can really speak, I would say, of historical decisions to defund the entire police departments Mm -hmm. uh, after the uh, death of uh, George Floyd and uh, protests that went under the banner of uh, Black Lives Matter that followed and were caused by that. Uh, and for a long time, European identity has looked at the United States and uh, what happens there and has shaped itself in relation to the United States. Um, so on one end, U.S. federalism has been taken as a sort of inspiration and comparison for the European project. On the other, Europeans have also opposed at times U.S. political culture and uh, interference in uh, European affairs. And that opposition has probably increased with the 
changing geopolitics of the 21st century and uh, become more evident through the Trump presidency. So how do you see the intense relationship between Europe and the United States developing? And how will it affect Europe's uh, self-understanding and, and narratives? This isn't really a, uh, a podcast with easy questions, is it? It's starting uh, points for us to talk yeah. about something. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's try. So uh, if we look at the American involvement in Europe, so the U.S. has, since the Second World War, been a very big booster of European integration. It's one of the primary boosters of that. So it's always been the American yeah. policy approach has been to... Uh, uh, to further European integration uh, during the Cold War, of course, for because as a counterpoint towards uh, towards the Soviet Union, but also in a kind of uh, way of bringing Europe together in a way that is profitable and also uh, to bring about a uh, stable situation which doesn't require millions of American soldiers mm -hmm. uh, brought in every few decades to, to hash out the problems of Europeans for them. So for that, what we came, came to is another post-1990s hangover. So that there is a kind of after the fall of the Soviet Union, there's a kind of an, an independence movement for Europe in that America is uh, no more this kind of uh, a given, but it's rather a, as Europe uh, has been building its own institutions, it is more a, a moment of growth of what we are in relation to the American big brother. Mm -hmm. And it is also the kind of, uh, the, uh, the European relation to America is that America is us. America is a European settler state. And it's, there's a kind of a similar uh, relationship as you have between say, Great Britain New and New Zealand and Australia in that it is because of the similarities of the fact that, for example, Finland has 5 million inhabitants. There's 1 million Finns living in America. And the same story goes uh, in some other European countries. The proportion is even bigger. Mm. So that there is this kind of that they are us, but they are have become very different. And then the question is that are we wrong? Are they wrong? How did they come become so different uh, socially and uh, as a kind of social mores? There is also the kind of question of uh, what can we or should we be able to learn about America, about what the positive of America is. And I'm, of course, I've been living in America, so I am a great fan of American okay. civil society, uh, American approaches to life, the kind of enterprising spirits and so forth. But I would say mostly of the kind of the idea of the understanding of immigration. So there is an understanding of immigration. There is an understanding of the kind of stereotypically said American dream that people come there 
to work, to develop, to build a better life. Mm. And that is something that European societies and European individuals would be very well served to understand better, that there is a legitimate desire to come to Europe. Europe offers a society that is free, a society that is equal to, you know, more or less, uh, at least on certain respects. And there is a lot for offer for migrants. And we should not be saying that we have to keep them out, but rather that there is a kind of advantage also for us. Mm, right. Not only economically, but also socially. So those, I guess, were the super big and difficult questions. And now we're heading towards some uh, a bit more light and creative ones. Um, so, Kaius, um, you as a researcher probably read a lot. I mean, thousands of of pages in I don't know what time, but... Um, Do you have in mind a specific book that would have influenced your thinking or your work the most or inspired you? And I mean, it doesn't have to be a um, a factual or academic book. It can be a fictional one. I would say that the uh, these kind of questions that uh, there are two ways of answering that. One is the kind of... Uh, uplifting, uh, show your civilization kind of uh, answer in which that uh, you just say that, oh, I like to, on my free time, I like to uh, reread uh, Derrida's early works. <laughs> or so now Proust- you're doubting where to go. <laughs> or uh, or then then you can just uh, reveal your uh, shallow shallowness and... Uh, the stuff that you actually do read. Go with the latter one, I say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as you can just from this preamble, you can see that the, that's where I was sort of like going for. Uh, I was thinking of that question and then, then I just uh, looked at the bookshelves and started thinking of what do I actually reread? What do I read again? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've been looking at and there's very few books that I actually have read several times and during the the corona thing uh, we did for the first time in 20 years uh, this that we took down all the books from the bookshelves and vacuumed them and so forth things oh. that one d- does when when there's nothing else to do <laughs> and then I started uh reading some of those inherited books as kind of Finnish classics of the uh, later 19th century and early 20th century. And that was just awful. This kind of, uh, so many of those were just like, you know, trite uh, redos of uh, like French classics or the kind of, this is the way that, you know, good literature was written in the 1920s and so forth. But what I've, actually found is that the when I 
get back to the actual answer to the question of what I do reread is that I noticed that I've had reread mostly the uh, the works of Douglas Adams, so the Hitchhiker hmm. right. trilogy. Okay. And I was just wondering that why is it that I just, you know, there are some other things that I have read several times that this is something that I just wondered what is there. And I th- then I was came to me that it's actually the, the fact that when you are talking about something completely different, if you're making up worlds, as is the case in Douglas Adams, you are making up worlds, but you are actually talking about yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you are sort of like let loose of the trappings of conventions, the conventional way of describing civil society or human interaction then you are sort of like freer to use your creativity. And the movie is uh, is really good too, uh, from the books. I haven't movie? seen that. Yeah, there's yes, a movie. there's a movie. Oh, oh. maybe that, that's the I'm, next I'm one. Le- I'm learning things. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so moving on to another question. Well, you, you met Caius here as a legal historian of the... 20th century mostly, but Caius uh, is also an expert in uh, in Roman law and antiquity. So this next question won't have a very obvious answer. And uh, we would like to know, if you could go back in the history of mankind, where would you go and why? Uh, as you know, I'm a professional historian. So uh, it sort of like skews my view. So if you look at how uh, what do you have for kids these kind of uh, games of where you go somewhere back in history and so forth, it's always that people are either you know uh, knights or uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> monks or uh, you know members of the court or so forth, and it's always a very this kind of. Uh, idea of going up to the nobility, whereas if you would just go somewhere into a historical period, uh, most likely you would be dead by two years old, or that you know life expectancy would be 29, mm. you would be living off the land and probably you know die uh, of starvation. That's a valid and very realistic point. So I I don't have any idea of you know going anywhere i don't think i would you know like the people there so even sort of my interest in antiquity uh it is still a very very different world and they have very mm. different val- values i wouldn't i wouldn't think i would be happy there hmm. so do we take that as in that you're quite happy Where you are and in what time you are. I would right probably now. go. I would probably go to last Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but there's kind of a larger point there, so that uh, if if Europe is and Europe's self-understanding is based on this kind of historical self-understanding, European nations like to invent themselves histories. And that history is usually a product of this kind of identification 
with something. So that if you have, for example, uh, in Italy, you had a very long period of time in which there was this kind of, not only the fascists, but even before the fascists, you had this identification with ancient Rome. And you had all this kind of building styles. Even now, the centers of European capitals are you know, mostly decked out in, in, in buildings, in classicizing style. Even the kind of... Uh, anti-classicizing uh, movements in style and so forth have been, uh, they have their own uh, ancient precedents. So you have the, like the French or German that they mm -hmm. look at the kind of ancient Germanic or uh, Frankish tribes. And you have this kind of idea of a great past, the, 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 the visions of past glory and so forth. And there is a kind of an idea that this, this is how we define ourselves, is to look through uh, what we have been before. Mm, right. And that's sort of like that overlooks the fact that it is not us. It is not people like us. These are people not in any way like us. These are people who have a completely different kind of value system, different kind of uh, mode of thinking even. There are things that we have picked up from there, but these are not us. And that's something that is really uh, the trouble with this kind of uh, formation of this historical consciousness through uh, the popular historical writing, is that you develop these mirages of history. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's a good point, and good point also that you maybe wouldn't um, do so well with the people from, I don't know, the 1920s or something. So maybe going back to last Tuesday is the right choice. Or would be if, if we had the choice. Or maybe doing time travel in a more limited way so that I could, for instance, see the final of the World Cup in 1982 when Italy won or something like that <laughs> and mm. then coming back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. All right. Um, I think this has been a great chat with you. Thank you so much, Caius and Paolo. Thank you, Bea. And thank you, Caius, for engaging with uh, our huge word-saving questions. And uh, Thank you for having me. This was a bit of a surprise, for me at least. Mm, hope, uh, hope it was a pleasant one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good. Good, thank you. And uh, thank you also to our listener. Uh, you could uh, stay tuned for our next episodes that uh, will come uh, very soon. We will introduce you to other uh, colleagues of uh, Ase Eurostorie that will give us more perspectives on uh, Europe and uh, where it's going. You can follow us on the Eurostorie website, uh, eurostorie.org, and uh, on Twitter at uh, Andal Eurostorie. We hope to get your feedback and uh, hear what you tell us about uh, this first episode of the podcast. All right. Thank you so much. And until next time, have a good week, everyone. Thank Bye. you.
This project is funded by the Academy of Finland, funded Center of Excellence in Law, Identity and the European Narratives. We would also like to thank Antonio Lopez Garcia for the jingle music. <laughs>